Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour. In partnership with Mishkondorea, it's business, but it's personal. Good morning and welcome to Jazz Shapers, where the shapers of business join the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. My guest today, I'm really pleased to say, because I've been tracking him for years, is Jimmy Mulville, co-founder of Hattrick Productions, one of the country's leading independent producers of comedy, drama and entertainment. Jimmy set up Hattrick in 1986 with Denise O'Donoghue and Rory McGrath. You heard of both of them, I'm sure. Their aim, simple, to make television programmes which we ourselves would like to watch. Well, they made a huge list of absolute classics, like Father Ted, Have I Got News For You, Room 101, Outnumbered, and Whose Line Is It Anyway? I Could Go On. I'm sure you know loads more too. Jimmy has a BAFTA award for outstanding creative contribution to television. He was the first British producer to recreate a British series, Whose Line Is It Anyway? for US Network TV in 1998. And he's certainly got a knack for producing long-running series. Have I Got News For You? has its 55th and 56th seasons last year. Amazing. We'll be speaking to Jimmy in just a few minutes. Here's Aretha Franklin with Just Right Tonight. That was Aretha Franklin with Just Right Tonight, as billed earlier. My business shape today, Jimmy Mulville. Star, behind the stage, behind the screen, behind the uh, all the cameras and everything. It's really, really good to have you here. Thank nice you. Nice to be here. You set this business up, Jimmy, Hattrick, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. some people may not be familiar with. I mean, people no. that watch the programmes, in a way, you kind of you don't really care who made it. Quite right. Um, 32 years ago, give or take. I 33 know. this year. I don't look it, do I? You don't look it at all. No. I was saying um, just before we, we, we started the programme for proper, I happened to look back at the 1990 pilot of Clive Anderson sitting there with you oh my God. and John Sessions et yeah. al. talking uh, as part of the Whose Line Is It Anyway pilot. Yeah. The hair was longer. Yeah, That's hair was only... longer and it had a colour in it. It did have a bit of colour. Yes. I, I actually prefer the colour now. Well, I, people would call me Ginger growing up in Liverpool. I went to this kind of school in Liverpool and I, I come home from school and say to my mum, the kids call me ginger at school and I was very upset and she said you go back and tell those boys you're not ginger you're strawberry blonde <laughs> which is the worst piece of advice you can give to a young kid in Liverpool going back to his school and saying my mum says I'm strawberry blonde it went down really well now the strawberry blonde boy was pretty good at acting and yeah. your teacher was pretty encouraging tell me a little bit about the urge to perform as a young kid yes. and how performing became producing because that's Obviously, you were very keen on being on the front of the stage, but you ended up being to the left, to the right, to behind, and all sorts sorts of the impresario. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, when I was a child, um, I had a very bad stammer. And um, when I did the odd school play, I I didn't stammer. And so it was quite a liberating experience where you're thinking, my God, I'm not stammering at all here. And I know they have a similar experience speech therapists when they get people with very bad stammers to sing, which I think people saw in the King's speech, uh, how effective that was. So there was that going on. Also, I like the attention, you know, I was an only child and 
I liked uh, hearing people laugh uh, when you did something which was deemed funny. So I was very uh, encouraged to act at school. The school was a, a, was a comprehensive school in Liverpool. It had been a grammar school, converted in 1966, as was all. All these schools were converted to the comprehensive system. But we were blessed with having some really motivated teachers. And so that boyhood dream carried on until I was at university. I got a place at Cambridge um, mainly due to the efforts of this one particular teacher who who saw that I was quite good at languages and he encouraged me to do Latin and ancient Greek at this Liverpool Comprehensive. And he would always pick a couple of guys. It was an all-boys school and uh, and do extra work with us and extra coaching. And, you know, he changed our lives, really, uh, this man. And um, at Cambridge, of course, I, I eventually got into the footlights. Um, and there I met Rory McGrath and Griffiths Jones and Clive Anderson and... Coming up behind me was Stephen Fry and Emma Thompson. So it was a kind of period of, you know, fantastic stimulation and challenges. And we put shows on and the dream was alive. You know, I thought, oh, this is what I want to do for a living. And then I left university and didn't get a job. I didn't. My oldest son recently said to me, he's now 20, he said, when you left college, what do you want to do? I said, well, this is not great advice from a father to a son, Joe, but there's only one thing I knew I didn't want to do. And that was to get a job. I didn't want to get a job job because in those days you would go off and get a job as a chartered accountant or a banker or something from those universities and you were kind of, that was your job for life. And of course that doesn't exist anymore. Now we have a kind of an environment where these young people are going to be doing four or five different careers. And I kind of wanted that life. I wanted a life where it was just more bespoke. But I didn't know what I was going to do next. And after a year of being a hospital porter in Catford at Lewisham General, which is interesting, was joining the SWP, Socialist Worker Party, and BNP riots in Lewisham, the very famous Lewisham riots. And I was working in A&E. And what they do, the ambulances would bring in all the, the trots and the communists and the Worker Party people with their broken arms and smashed up faces. And then half an hour later, they bring the fascists into the same A&E and it would all kick off in the A&E. <laughs> you mentioned you went to comprehensive school, then you went to Cambridge. Yeah. That journey now is still a hard one. That journey now is still not typical. When did you realise you could do stuff academically? I mean, at what point? Because your your parents both work in class. Yeah. At what point did you go? Hold on a minute. That's coming easily to me. Was there ever a sense of I can do this? I enjoy it, or was it? Were you pulled by this teacher? I, unusually, I like school, and school for me was it was it began on time, it ended on time. There was a safety to it, a regularity to it, and actually, that's the way we kind of run Hattrick. Um, interestingly, is that I always say that creative people like a safe environment. You know, the idea that it's all just made up as we go along. No, if you've got a highly creative person, they want to know that a meeting's going to happen then, that that's going to be delivered then, the props are going to be there then, the set's going to be built there. And, you know, it's not just going to we just think of it up as, as we go along. What happens is that provides a platform for them to extemporize, take risks. But you have to, in my view anyway, there has to be a basis of security. There has to be a base camp before you can reach the summit. And I think that I was provided, school gave that, it gave me a kind of an inner security that when I was at school, I knew I was safe. Not that I wasn't safe at home, but, and there was, and there was a journey. And I had people, gifted teachers, telling me stories about the world I hadn't yet encountered that were just firing my imagination. I wanted to talk to you about risk because I think comedy is all about pushing boundaries, both for the people delivering it, but also people receiving it. Because the art of the brilliant, funny joke is you don't know where it's going to go and then... Or, you think, you think it's going to go left and it goes right. Yeah. Tell me about over the years how you as a business person in a creative industry have managed risk. <sighs> well, that's, a, that's a big question. I think I'm slightly risk addicted. 
So I'm drawn to risk. And fortunately, I work with people who are slightly risk averse. So we sit in a room and I'll come out with something and they will listen to it very carefully. And then they'll be, I can tell by the length of the pause after I've finished how good the idea is. And there'll be like a noise. One of them will go, yeah, yeah, no, um, yeah. <laughs> and I know it's a terrible idea. So I don't know. Sometimes we've taken risks and they haven't worked out. You know, we... We invested quite a lot of money in doing Funny or Die here. Um, we did a deal with the American Funny or Die, the Will Ferrell company. Mm. And Matt, Matt Lucas and David Walliams were involved and, you know, and some great people. And so there were some great ideas on it, but we couldn't get it to be visible. And it died. And we, you know, we lost quite a bit of money on that. And I would say in the year 2000, I got very involved with the first iteration of the dot-com frenzy. And I got involved with a company where I had more meetings about this new environment than I was having on proper TV shows. And uh, we then presented our ideas to the board of BT and they loved the ideas and then asked, well, who's going to pay for them? And we thought, well, you'll pay for them. And they said, no, 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 we don't do that. We're the platform. So suddenly I said to my partner at the time, Paul Zunnenberg, who now um, runs Associated Press, I said, I don't think this industry's dead. I think it hasn't been born yet. And of course, that's what we're seeing now is 20 years later, 18 years later, of course, now there are more ways to monetize ideas on the Internet in a huge way. But in those days, I was kind of being a slightly hysterical personality has its downsides. You know, you can get into a kind of state about things. Are you hysterical? You don't you don't see me. And obviously, well, we, we, male we, hysteria, I think male hysteria comes out in more subtle ways. Oh. You know, yeah, I think. Do you do you collect things? No, I'm quite a minimalist. Ah, actually. I'm a strange. Quite, I'm a strange one. If you are you a, a collector? No, I'm not actually. But oh. but you meet. No, guys, I don't like collecting. But things. you meet guys who collect things. Yeah, that I do. I've they're met lots of them. They're they're pretty hysterical. But I I want to read you a quote. You said this, okay? Oh, Jimmy. Oh, dear. oh dear. But it's okay. It's now not, when I speak, it's not I get you into trouble. But when I speak, I don't listen. <laughs> you know, oh, but ditto. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the art of speaking. Otherwise, if you ever listen to what you said, you'd never say anything. Okay. You said here a long time ago, but I think it, it touches on something you mentioned about hysteria. I'm completely obsessive. Mm. When I ask for tea and biscuits, I don't mean one cup of tea and a biscuit. Mm. I mean a pot of tea mm. and a packet of biscuits. Yeah. And the pot of tea is drunk and the packet of biscuits is yeah. eaten. And I imagine in terms of the nine to five school, as you move it into the safe area, everything has to be just so. Is that right? Yeah. I think that, you know, even down to our Christmas party, we had a year where people didn't concentrate. And we have a little Christmas sing-song at Hattrick. It's called the Brand Tub. And it's basically we all gather in the kitchen and these days people bring their kids in. And um, we had a year where someone said, oh, yeah, there's a girl at Hattrick. She's one of the one of the runners and she plays guitar. Maybe she could do it. And, and basically we have a list of songs, which are Christmas carols and popular Christmas songs like you know, the Slade number or Fairytale New York. And then there's just favorites like Mamas and the Puppers and stuff. And we just have a good old sing song for about 45 minutes. But up until that point, we'd had a really great guy doing guitar. He was, he, was, he was a showman. He led the room and he stopped doing it. And that year, people weren't concentrating and they thought, well, it's just the brand tub. It's just the Christmas do. It's just for the kids. And it was terrible. And I got the people in organizing it and I kind of hit the roof. I said, this is a really important event for us. This is where people bring their children in. And it's a moment where we experience family at Hattrick. Mm. And it's really important the kids see where their parents work and it's a good place and they have a good time. So for me, it's the most important event of the year. And the following year, they pull the stops out and we have Father Christmas now. We have, we have, <laughs> we have these two <laughs> fantastic singers. But you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, if you're going to do it's it, gotta be right. let's just do it, yeah. you know, rather than just phoning it in. 
Stay with me for more from my guest, Jimmy Mulvill, in a couple of minutes. First, though, we're going to hear our next taster from the new Sessions podcast, which can be found on all the major podcast platforms. Paddy O'Connell, with the help of Mishkon explores the world of the gig economy. The new Sessions with Paddy O'Connell, in partnership with Mishkon It's business, but it's personal. Chat FM. Hello, I'm Paddy O'Connell, and you're listening to the new Sessions from Mishkon Each week, we have an in-depth look at a key item of law which is hitting the headlines. Today, we're talking about the gig economy, and it's all about the way we earn money in the modern age. And here to discuss is Susanna Kintish. She's employment partner at Mishkonda Rea. Now, Matthew Taylor carried out a review and he said that it was a very, very fast changing world, but that basically everyone should be offered work that's decent and fair. Now, those are interesting, aren't they? Because they're not, they're not really legal phrases. They're moral phrases, aren't they? They are. And, 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 the, the, and I think, and I think therein lies the real difficulty with with legislation in this area is that everything is very, very subjective. You know, genuine two way flexibility where where both parties have a say as to when they turn up and when they don't is is actually is really welcomed. But how do you legislate for for that um, for that two way flexibility and to stop one party taking advantage of another? Mm. I mean, and you've raised that because I mean, here's what the TUC general secretary has said: it's that you know. Sh- Sham self-employment has spread. And in other words, that there are people who are generally self-employed, but employers twist the system. And the Taylor report said that people should be cautioned against becoming victims of technology because once you go into the technology, it makes it very easy to say you've done 45 minutes of driving or whatever it is for a taxi firm. Do you, do you now see quite explosive arguments about this, about what is genuine self-employment and what is an effort to abuse an employee? Yeah, I mean, I think I think words like sham self-employment are um, unhelpful in the general context. I mean, obviously, you're always going to have people operating around the peripheries of of, of trying to exploit people. But you know, if you look at the trade of a taxi driver historically, pre-apps, the trade of a plumber, you would always in your head expect those trades tradesmen or taxi drivers to be self-employed. Mm-hmm. Um, the the world the world has changed and when people make a brand out of a business um you know slowly controls start coming in and that arguably undermines undermines people's flexibility in a certain situation the new sessions podcast with paddy o'connell from mishkondorea find more of the new sessions podcasts dealing with key legal matters on itunes jazz shapers on jazz fm in partnership with mishkondorea it's business, but it's personal. You can have a listen to all of our former Jazz Shapers and indeed enjoy this very programme with Jimmy again by asking Alexa to play Jazz Shapers or you can pop Jazz Shapers into iTunes where you'll find the full archive. But back to today and to Jimmy Mulville, co-founder of Hattrick Productions, one of the country's leading independent producers. I love saying things like that. I mean, just like it trips off the tongue Why very not? nicely. Of comedy, drama and entertainment. Um, over the years, of course, our tastes, our social mores have shifted. You're programs always seem appropriate without being safe safe the use of the word in a uh-huh. different way how have you managed to do that because how did you see or the the, the the improvisation moment was happening in the 90s how did you know that a a a comedy about a family and a number of children would work at that time and how do you calibrate it or is it much more natural than that is it much less thought about yeah. than that yeah i mean it's not i think we we've been taken by surprise by most of our hits 
Really, you couldn't even you you weren't sure that that would that was a winner. No, I mean we've enjoyed you know you you enjoyed the idea when it's pitched to you and you enjoy the developments and you think it's good and you mm-hmm. think this might work. Can't be sure. Whose line? I was an actor at the time mm-hmm. and I was doing some acting in the eighties and I was invited to be on a radio show called Whose Line Is It Anyway? And Stephen Fry and John Sessions were invited on that and it was a double recording and Lenny Henry and I were the guests and I was hopeless. I mean, it was like just being invited. Like, it was like being invited to a car accident. I didn't know, didn't know what was happening. I was just in shock. But what I realised with my producer hat on, because I think having been a bit of an actor and a bit of a writer, but when I decided to give up acting and writing, becoming a producer, there, it was kind of it fed into it. You know, there were careers that fed into my producing skill set because I could notice what a great show it was, and I could see the audience were having a great time, and I could see it was organic and it was dangerous and it was improvised. I mean, literally, when Stephen Fry was. Given given the job of, right, you're in a job interview in the style of a Jane Austen novel, and (laughs) off he went. He thought, God, this is absolutely brilliant. And it's populist, but it's smart. And I think if there's anything that identifies our programming is it it's populist because you want as many people to watch it as possible, but we like it if it's a bit smart. Hmm. So our kind of mantra is that we create quality content for profit is our little mm-hmm. mission statement that we developed years ago. Is this, you know, is this something that we'd watch and is it going to make money? Because it has to do both yeah. if you're going to be in business. But yeah. the, lo- the lovely thing, as I looked at it thematically, I was wondering what that, that line was between you know, how you get so many people watching and yet it's very intelligent. Yeah. It goes back to your stories as a kid and the fact that, that the classics are, are important and mm. that they are accessible because mm. they're just fabulous stories. Mm. That um, imagination that you have and that you've, been exercising that part of your brain for many 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 years when you spot young talent is that what you're looking for is that are you looking for that hold on a minute i haven't seen that idea is not very good but i think this person's got something oh there's no question is that you um you know i I was talking to graham graham linehan who wrote father ted and he's got an eye for you know new things and new talent and you know we he spotted something the other day and we were talking about that and and you know what this person was doing wasn't necessarily right for tv but you could see that this person had a spark of some real fresh comic uh, innovation about him and um like i say you you kind of sense it it you can't and sometimes you're wrong mm. and you know you'll back you'll back somebody and they won't develop i mean it's like a young sportsman like a young footballer you know is that you can show great promise and then it, you, they just don't kick on or sometimes they do paul merton you know i i knew him when he's a very young comic and he did bit parts in who dares wins a show i was involved in, in the early 80s and um you know he was quite funny you know he'd, he'd sit around but he went off and did gigs in the evening and then um he did Who's Line, and he was brilliant in Who's Line. And then we did a sketch show with him, and then we put him into Have I Got News For You pilot because uh, he'd just been ill. He'd come back from being ill, mm. and we thought we'd give him a run out in the pilot, and he was brilliant. And uh, and Ian was in the pilot because he was the editor of Private Eye, and they were the only two things we kept from the pilot because the pilot was abysmal. Mm. And the pilot, had the BBC not booked a series as well as the pilot, we would never have made the series of Have I Got News For You. Had the pilot been a pure audition, we would have failed the audition because it was the worst programme made by human beings up to that point. In terms of that, and just before we go to more music, there's a, a, um, that sense of joy for you. When is it at its most potent? When are you go, do you know what, Jimmy Marvel's happy? Is it that moment you see that spark? Is it when you hear the idea? Is it when you see it on television? Is it 10 years later? When is it, if, assuming you have those yeah. moments? Well, when, I, when you're pitching an idea and you've sold the idea and you see that moment in their eyes when they bought your idea... When they've got it. Yeah. It's a fantastic feeling of, 
I guess it's a bit like when a stand-up comedian gets a laugh. Is it's it's also about the dark side of that moment. Of course, is it's about control. Mm. Is you've got them to do what you want them to do, which is what most human beings are driven by. And we grow up, we learn we don't have that ability. And you have people like Donald Trump who still thinks he has that ability. So you have people who grow up and realize, in, in all humility, there are certain things I can do, certain things I can't do. But in that moment when you get someone to buy your idea, there is a moment of right. We can do anything. And then straight after that moment is, oh, God, I've got to make the program. <laughs> it's the realization. A lot so, more work. So there is that thing of follow your bliss. But actually, then when you get your bliss is yeah. you have to trudge the road to make it happen. And then and you've got to enjoy the journey, really. And I want to talk to you um, about working. You said to your you said your advice to your oldest son is don't get a job. I didn't want to get a job. You still don't have a job in a way. I mean, no. you're running your own business. And yeah. um, I've also read about you that you're not really going to stop work, whatever. We already just decided what, it isn't really work. You almost, you looked at publicly selling the company, mm. having bought it back, having mm. sold it. Yeah. I can't imagine you ever relinquishing just because why would you? I mean, what's, what? I don't imagine money drives you. No, no, I mean, I think it's it'd be dishonest to say that money's not important. I think it's one, it's one calibration of success. Yeah. If you're making a profit, you know, no business should get a, got a business if they're making a profit so we try and make a profit mm. um but no i mean the idea i mean I, you know i was made an, i've been made offers by companies which i wouldn't want to work with not because they're bad people it's just a different view on things i mean what happened to me was that i in the 80s i developed as a lot of my people in my family a drink problem mm. i got that sorted out and so i kind of made a decision to draw a line and very few people have this opportunity where you draw a line over your life and say that was then and this is now. And what am I going to do now, consciously? How am I going to live my life? And I think that what I try to do is try to put challenges in my own way. So I've just bought a beagle puppy, for example. Now, if you feel that your life is a bit humdrum, get a beagle. Right? Yeah. Right? Because <laughs> they're a nightmare. But I love him. And yeah. he's dragging me around the park. And I'm having to train him. I'm having to dig into even more patience. It's about finding things that kick me out of my comfort zone, you know, and keep me on the straight and narrow. And I have a group of friends who help me do that. Uh, nothing to do with my business. You know, I have, a, I have a great friend called Tim Mellers, who ended up being worldwide chairman of Grey Advertising. Mm. I met Tim when I got sober, and he helped me enormously. I, I think if I hadn't met Tim, I might not yet be sober, because he intervened in my life at a certain point where I was sober and I'd stopped drinking but I was beginning to discover why I drank and I was beginning to deal with the issues in my life that mm. actually drove me into that dark place of wanting to obliterate my life through drink and drugs I actually started to feel those feelings and it was a very dark time for me I was about 36 years of age and uh, and he intervened and he helped me enormously and I, like, like I said without him then a conversation with another man who'd, who'd been on a similar journey to me I don't know where I've end, I would have ended up. So I feel enormously grateful that I got a second chance at life. And that's really informed my decisions, is that mm. everything it really is a bonus. You know, I think that anything I do, I would say to younger producers, try it. If it fails, you won't regret it. What you'll regret are the things you don't do. Mm. Is when you're on your deathbed, it won't be the fact that you screwed that up that or you did this or that funny thing happened. When it'll be the things you didn't try because you thought you were inept or you weren't competent another friend of mine said you must always find out where you're incompetent and i say to young producers you know when they come in with a problem i'll tell them about a problem i had 20 years ago which is worse than their problem they go really that happened to you I said yeah that happened to me and the information i'm giving them is it happened to me it was a terrible thing that happened and look i'm still here 
And it's really important that older people mentor younger people like that. And they don't tell them what to do, but they share their experiences with them. I have to remind myself that my 20-year-old son is going through all those things you go through when you're 20 years old. He's in much better nick than I was when I was 20. But as his dad, I can get into that place of telling him what to do. And I have to hold myself and say, you know what, Joe, you're fine. Let me tell you what I was like when I was 20. And it kind of jaw drops and his eyes widen. And you can see the sense of relief in him that, oh, okay, so it's okay to be like this. You know, because shame is a terrible thing in, in our society. It's what the newspapers feed off. You know, that feeling that we should be ashamed of ourselves for getting things wrong. You know, when an accident happens, we're all looking for someone to blame. It's an accident. You know, someone made a mistake. It's a human thing. And we live in a society now where it just feels to me that you can't make a mistake if you make a mistake, you're cast into oblivion, never to be heard of again. And I think that's we're going to lose a lot of very good people because of that. Stay with me for my final chat with my guest, Jimmy Mulville. Uh, plus, we'll be playing a track from Herbie Hancock. That's coming up in just a moment. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. That was Herbie Hancock with Dolphin Dance. I've got Jimmy Mulver with me for just a few more minutes. You, you talked then about darkness. You talked then about um, connecting with your emotions. And, uh, and you now, as a, you're obviously a dad, you're a leader of a business. It strikes me that you're a very open person. How much is openness an important part of the creative process and of the way you run your life? You talked about the Beagle. You talked about your friends. And I, I, I was kind of going to ask, what does, what does Jimmy do when Jimmy's not working? Because I imagine you're mm. always thinking about mm-hmm. the next thing. But that openness, how have you every day continued to embrace it and remember that you're, you have gratitude in there? Because you, you talked about that. And mm. it is, it, it's a classic way of combating the, mm. you know, the addictive mm. patterns. That, that, but sure. how do you manage that every day? Because it, 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 it strikes me as someone who has held that line. Yeah. Well, it is, it, is, it is a daily process. And sometimes I get up in the morning and I think, oh, God, not this again. You know, I'll be honest. I mean, sometimes you get tired, you get stressed, and you think, oh, do I really? Again? This? And then another part of my brain says, okay, now what we do is, Jimmy, we get out of bed and we have a shower. Can you do that? Have a shower? <laughs> Yes, you should, I think you should write this down as we go. This is brilliant. This is and, make good telly. And then, and radio. then maybe after the shower, have a coffee and some breakfast. How about that? Mm. And then, and then we we'll have a conversation about whether life is worth living or not. And a friend of mine says, "Do you not find that as the day goes on, it gets more survivable?" And that's the truth. It's really, true, isn't it? Is that of course, you know, life is difficult. It's you know, there's a book I re- I read when I first got sober was called The, the Road Less Traveled, which was like a Bible for people in the late eighties. It was the self help book, and it begins with the sentence: "Life is difficult, and uh, the quality of your life will be de- dependent on your ability to solve the problems in your life." And that's true. Is it? I'm reading a book at the moment, which I don't know if I can say on the radio, but it's the subtle art of not giving an F. Oh yes, right, yes. And uh, Mark Manson, and he talks about this. He's saying, you know, the pursuit of happiness and, and pleasure, it's a false dream because actually people who are generally content and happy and have meaning in their lives are people who can solve their life problems and they increase the quality of those problems. So if you're drunk all the time, you've got a problem. 
right? You stop drinking, it just creates a whole range of other problems. They're slightly better problems. They're high-class problems as opposed to low-class problems. But life is never going to be without problems. And sometimes I mentor people who are trying to stop drinking and they complain about their lives. And I say, go for a walk around Brompton Cemetery because the place is full of people who don't have any problems. You know, part of being alive is to have a problem. And it should be the thing that you celebrate because there's an old African proverb is, you know, life is a struggle. And in the end, you lose it. So celebrate the struggle. You've got to you've got to enjoy it and take full responsibility for everything going on in your life. It's such a relief not to blame other people. Jimmy, it's been brilliant talking to you, listening to you. Uh, thank you. And thank you for sharing so openly. Um, you run a highly successful company. Please keep doing it because you make stuff that makes people laugh thank and you. brings joy to their lives, genuinely, me included. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. Well, I can't be the only one. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation, would we? Um, just before I let you go, uh, mm. what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? So my song choice is uh, Benny King's Stand By Me. For lots of reasons, really. One, I think it's a fantastic song. But I remember the movie, which used that as a title. And I was walking along the King's Road with my brother, who came to live with me. There were certain issues at home in Liverpool. He came to live with me in London when he was about 14 years of age. And we're walking down the King's Road. I'm 18 years older than him. He's my stepbrother. So it's like a, almost like having a young son. It was pouring with the rain. We just thought we'd dive into a cinema without any expectations. And we sat down and watched Stand By Me. And I, he enjoyed it watching these kids go on an adventure. And I watched it with a great longing to be a child again. And so it had a massive impact. And we never, we'd never forgotten that film, me and my brother. And we're very close. Uh, th- this song means a lot to me. And it just moves me. The idea that someone is standing next to you, I think, is really important. I think, like I say, I don't be too heavy about this, but modern society is so... People can feel so isolated. And we're taught by our leaders that we're all different. We should hate each other. And in fact, we're all the same. We're all doing it together for this blink of an eye in history you know for however long we're here we're all in it together and yet our leaders seem to want to glory in the fact that we're different and to promote the chaos that ensues from those differences and in the end we're just in it together so stand by me i think is a great anthem for Stand By Me from Benny King, the son choice of my exceptional business shaper, Jimmy Mulville. He talked about his product being populist but smart. He talked about creating safe environments for creative people, trying things that take you out of your comfort zone. And in essence, above everything else, it's all about solving life's problems. Absolutely brilliant stuff. That's it from Jazz Shapers. Have a great weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazzshapers.